series never settle and of course that's our theme for this year as well and we've been just moving right along we uh, were introduced to it through first chronicles chapter 4 and the bible says there in verse 9 and 10 and Jabez was more honorable than his brethren his mother called his name Jabez saying because I bear him with sorrow Jabez called on the God of Israel saying oh that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast that thine hand might be with me that thou wouldest keep me from evil that it may not grieve me, and God granted him that which he requested. We talked about Jabez and just his heart for God and the need that we have for the, a heart for God. Uh, we talked about a number of those in the Word of God and the characteristics and qualities that they possessed that enabled them to never, ever settle. And so we've been addressing that issue of never settling, and yet we find in America, we find in our churches, we find in our own lives even that we do often settle more than we'd like to admit. And boy, we don't want to settle. I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle. And yet I find myself settling from time to time. I really do. But boy, we need to take steps not to, correct? And so we've been addressing this issue of never settling, and we touched on a number of areas in which we better never settle if we truly want to get the very best that God has for us. 
F.B. Meyer said, let us be inspired with a holy ambition to get all that God is willing to bestow. All that God is willing to bestow. Can I just remind you for just one moment, please, that if there's anything good in your life, it's because God put it there. All good gifts come from the Father of lights. Can I tell you that if you're looking for good things elsewhere, my friend, you will be sadly disappointed. And boy, we want all that God has for us and wants for us. And if we're going to get that, then we cannot settle. Over the course of our study, we noted some areas. We said, well, we, we don't want to settle for a good marriage when we can have a great marriage. We noted that we don't want to settle for good kids when we can have godly kids. We don't want to settle for a successful ministry if we can have a supernatural ministry. And we've addressed those issues. And today, I want to consider this thought. Never settle for being an ordinary Christian when you could be an extraordinary Christian. Never settle for being an ordinary Christian when you could be an extraordinary Christian. I mean, let's not simply settle for mediocrity. Let's be exceptional in our walk and our faith. And so today, I'm going to spend a little bit of time addressing that issue, and I want to first look at, a, I guess, some, just the, the Christian life in general. I want to kind of understand again what it's all about, and then I want to try to make a very brief application as to how we can become extraordinary, not just ordinary. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless us today. We need you, and we're asking you to apply your scriptures, your word to us today. Well, thank you, and we'll praise you for it. Now, again, Lord, we, we want to accomplish much in this short time. So, Lord, we're going to need your Holy Spirit to drive home truth. We're going to need you and your word to truly impact our lives right now. I have nothing in and of myself that will do anything to help these thy people. But your word is chock full of practical helps, principles that will ultimately lead to great success in our Christian lives. May we not settle for being ordinary Christians. But may we truly seek to be extraordinary for you. We love you. We'll thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the Christian life, as we think about it, I just want to share a couple of thoughts about the Christian life. First of all, I want to note the mark. You say the mark? Well, in our soul-winning training, we've addressed and dealt with many times this idea of sin. And in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says, for, the, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what we say basically is, is that what that literally means is to miss the mark. Now, the mark is Jesus Christ, who is perfect and holy and sinless. So what we do is we'll often refer to an illustration. We'll go, all right, let's assume for just a moment there's a dartboard on the wall over there, and each of us has a dart. The goal, of course, is to hit the bullseye. You throw your dart, you miss by an inch. I throw mine, I miss by two inches. Now, I can say that although you came closer to the bullseye than I did, we both still missed the mark. So you see that the, the God standard is perfection, and every person alive misses the mark. We all fall short of his perfect standard. And we know that Jesus Christ is the standard. He's the gold standard, if you will. He is perfect and sinless and righteous. 
And when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we fall miserably short. The mark in the Christian life is maturity. The goal is maturity and Christ-likeness. In the end, one day, when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, we want to look just like Him. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that the day that I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, God began a work in me. May I say He began a work in you. And the Bible goes on to say that he'll perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about, he'll perform it till the day that Jesus Christ himself returns and takes you up and out. Because it is at that point you receive that new body. Man, the work is not complete. It has only begun. And God says that he began it. But can I tell you, there's an element of responsibility there on your behalf and mine. Take your Bible, look over Luke chapter 9, verse 62, please. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. We're talking about the mark, and that mark in the Christian life, that goal in the Christian life in which we want to attain is maturity and Christ-likeness. We know that he began the work, but notice what the Bible says in Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Of course, he began the work, but it is your duty and my duty to keep our hand to the plow and not look back. Can I tell you there's nothing easy about keeping your hand on the plow? You go ahead and in the old days put your hand to the plow. You manually plow a field. My friend, you can expect some blisters on your hands. You can expect some sweat to flow. You're going to find that it's not easy, it's not simple, it's very difficult. But my friend, the Bible says that God began that work, but you and I have a responsibility to keep our hand on that plow. And it says not to look back. Why? Because in looking back, it could easily go off or stray. Paul describes his journey of the Christian life often by utilizing a... a, He speaks of it in terms of a race. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, the mark is maturity. The mark is Christ-likeness. We're to run our race, and we're to run it well. And if we're going to run our race well, if we're going to arrive where we belong, then we're going to have to grow stronger each and every day. We're going to have to develop greater endurance consistently. When we reach the finish line, we need to be the spitting image of Jesus Christ himself. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I mean, when we finally arrive at the end of our lives, we ought to look just like him. The mark, the goal, if you will, maturity and Christ-likeness. Can you imagine with me for a moment a child who never grows? 
I mean, I think about the doctors and nurses and all the medical field today. They have all these tests today for infants and children, and they, they weigh them, and they check their body mass, and they want to make sure that they're not malnutritioned, and they, 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 they do all of that, and they check them because why? It's natural. It's normal to grow. And if the child is not growing, that is unnatural, and something needs to be done to change that. In the Christian life today, it's imperative, it is essential, it is absolutely necessary that you and I grow. If we fail to grow, that is unnatural. That is not the norm. But I know a lot of people that haven't grown a bit. That is not God's norm. No, he began the work in you. And he'll perform until the day of Jesus Christ. But my friend, you have to put the hand to the plow. You can't look back. You've got to grow and become everything God intended you to be. You must mature and become Christ-like according to Romans 8, 29 because that is exactly what he intends. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God wants us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's the gold standard. He's the mark. Christ-likeness, maturity in the believer's life. It's the goal. Grow in Christ. And that leads us to the next one. We see the mark, maturity, Christ-likeness. We note the means. How do we arrive at that goal? How do we arrive at that mark, that place? Well, the means, mastery and growth. There's a mastery or growth. You say, what do you mean? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Again, we have the Apostle Paul. And he's going to, again, utilize this illustration or this idea of a race. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Notice there's somebody who's striving for the mastery. Listen, there are those that are preparing for these Olympic games. There's those that are preparing for these, these contests. And they are physically preparing. They're mentally preparing. They're they're emotionally preparing so that they can cross that finish line first, so that they can win a corruptible crown. In those days, they'd place a little crown on your head, and it was often just a little reed or this kind of a, kind of a, 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 a I can't remember the name of it, but, but it was just a, kind of like leaves. I don't know about you, but man, I, I would rather have a gold crown. But, but anyway, they, they give them those little, I'd rather have a gold medal even. But that's what they won, and they were proud to wear it, and they strived, and they worked hard, and they sought to master their skill. Why? Because they wanted to win a corruptible crown, but you and I are to win an incorruptible crown. And we do that by mastering the Christian life. We do that by growing in the Christian life and growing in our faith. I want to arrive at that finish line Christ-like. I want to be mature in my Christian faith. That's what God intends, and you do that by mastering the Christian life, by growing in the Christian life. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 2 says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. The very moment you are born again, you begin a process of growth. As we mentioned already, it would be improper, it would be unnatural to not, not to grow. And God says, listen, you are like little babies, you're like newborn babies when you come to Jesus Christ. Begin to sincerely drink of that milk. It's a sincere milk of the word. Get into the Bible, get into the word of God and allow it to saturate your life. Allow that milk to build you up, to strengthen you, to help you to grow. Growth is a common theme in the Apostle Peter's writings. Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Immediately for the child of God that comes to Christ, and that's the only way you become a child of God, by the way. We're all creations of God, but we're not the children of God except by faith in Christ Jesus. The moment, though, you become a child of God, you are admonished, you are encouraged to grow by consuming the sincere milk of the word. And it takes a desire, by the way. Notice it's the desire, desire the sincere milk of the word as newborn babes. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take long to realize that that baby better get fed or they make your life miserable. You ever not feed a baby? What do they do? Scream and cry and throw a little fit. Little sinners. Selfish sinners, always wanting fed. Then again, what do we do when we don't get fed? Well, I get a little irritable when I don't eat, preacher. Wife knows, uh, family knows when I'm not eating, I get a little irritable. Uh huh. Baby. <laughs> Growth is common. Notice what the Apostle Peter says. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in grace. Man, he tells these newborn babes to desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And then he goes on to say, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 now. Notice again this common theme. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Whereby are given us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. He says, man, I want you to know you've been given some promises, you've been told some things that are so vital, so important, and they are true, and you can... Have the divine nature. You can become a child of God. You can become a new creature in Christ. What a blessed promise that is. But hold on, that's not where it ends. That's not where it stops. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, watch, and beside this, and beside this, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the mark 
is maturity. It's Christ-likeness. How do we arrive at that? What's the means by which we get there? It's the mastery of the Word of God. It's the mastery of the things of God. It's growth in our life. And the Apostle Peter is writing and saying, listen, it's not enough to simply be saved today. You don't start here and end here. That's not what God intended. No, you're on a journey and you're to add to your faith consistently and constantly until you arrive one day at the finish line. That finish line, we ought to look like Jesus. It takes place. It happens by mastery and growth. That's the means by which it takes place. However, in spite of the fact that Peter, the apostle, that Paul, the apostle, emphasized the need for growth in the Christian's life, there were still those who settled. They settled for something less than what God had for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto, car- uh, unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I wish I could have spoken to you as spiritual. I wish I could have talked to you like adults, but no, i got to talk to you like your little baby still. He's not talking about age. He's talking about spiritual age. He's talking about spiritual development. He's talking about spiritual growth now. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, we read, For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. When you should be in a position to teach and to lead and to train, instead I have to talk to you like little babies again. You still have need of the milk. The first things, i got to continue to lay the same foundation over and over and over again. He's saying, believer, don't you understand that the mark, the goal is maturity, it's Christ-likeness. And the means by which you arrive there is nothing less than mastering, mastering the Word of God and growing in the Word of God and growing in your faith. If you fail to do so, you will never arrive there. You'll never be Christ-like. You'll never get everything God wanted for you. Instead, he's telling these in Corinth, he's telling these Hebrew believers, he's saying, listen, you have settled There's so much more God has for you in your Christian life. But you're still drinking the milk. You still got a bottle stuck in your mouth. When you should be eating a two-inch thick steak and the juice ought to be rolling off the side of your mouth, you're over there having to wipe the little milk up that spilled out of the bottle. You're settling. I don't know about you, but man, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll eat a cheeseburger from McDonald's, but give me that double quarter pounder any day of the week. Are you kidding me? When I've settled for a cheeseburger, when I can have me a double quarter pounder, I can have me a big juicy steak as a believer spiritually, or I'm going to have to settle for a little measly milk. I'm settling if I do. And the truth is today is I I don't want to be an ordinary Christian. Ordinary Christians today are drinking milk still. 
Ordinary Christians are still back there in the infant stage. Ordinary Christians don't have a desire to grow in Christ as he intended. I don't want to be ordinary. I want to be extraordinary. Amen. Amen. What do you want to be? What do you want out of your Christian life? Is it enough to simply drink milk your whole days? To constantly be fed by the pastor and the Sunday school teachers? Don't you want to one day be the one up front telling somebody how to be saved, teaching them how to live the Christian life and apply the word of God? Don't you? Is it enough to just drink milk? We settle. Eh, ordinary Christians. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I mean, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It will be one day when he takes us out and we face him one on one. Then it'll matter. And he'll say, I know your name, but you don't look like you're supposed to look. Here, let me, let me pick you up and hold you, little baby. You've never matured in your Christian life. How sad. By the way, can I tell you that I still have a lot of maturing to do in my Christian life? You say, yeah, the way you're acting right now, we believe it, preacher. We do, don't we? We all do. But we have a choice to make. Will we simply settle, though? Or will we say, I don't want to be just an ordinary Christian. I want to be an extraordinary Christian. I want to be everything God wants me to be, and I want to accomplish everything God wants me to accomplish, and I want to enjoy everything God has for me. I'm just going to say it. It's probably not true. My wife says I read into things way too often, but I feel a little kink here. I feel like somebody's going, you shouldn't have to be extraordinary. That's prideful. That's arrogant. You're not in the ballpark, friend. I'm not even going to answer you. Moving on. I can't imagine having a lackadaisical, settling attitude, and you're going to blame God and say that you're actually humble. Give me a break. That's prideful already. Preacher, you're a blessing. You hit the nail on the head. You're awesome. I mean, you just hit a 300-yard drive right there. You just shot a three-pointer at the buzzer. You just threw a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl. Thank you. <laughs> we see the mark. The mark is maturity. The mark is Christ-likeness. The means is mastery or growth. The mission. What's the mission? It's magnification. Look if you would at Revelation 4.11 to clarify what I'm getting at here. It's not you becoming an extraordinary Christian so that you can pat yourself on the back or that you can receive some kind of accolade or that somebody can say, wow, what a legacy they left. You become extraordinary for one reason, to fulfill your purpose, your God-given purpose for existing. You say, what's that? Well, that's why I love Revelation 4.11. It's become one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Boy, is he ever worthy. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Isn't that wonderful? He's saying, listen, this is all about him. 
Man, I'll tell you what, you can sit back there and have a bottle in your mouth. You can, he can begin that work and you can go ahead and choose not to put your hand to the plow. That's a choice that you're going to make. But my friend, when you arrive at the end, and all of us are going to arrive at the end sooner or later, my friend, we're going to face a God who deserved the honor and the glory. We're going to face a God who owed, we owed our very best. And we're going to have to look him in the eye and say, well, I settled. I settled. We have the example of David as he faced Goliath. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 17, 46, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and unto the wild beasts of the earth, that everybody will know my name, and I'll be the greatest king that ever lived. That's not what he said, is it? It certainly was in his heart as we looked at the life of David. He said that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. All the earth may know. We have the example of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. The Bible says in 1 Kings 8, 60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Why are you building that temple, Solomon? Well, you know... Israel's a big nation, and Israel's pretty, pretty, pretty major, and I, I want it to look good in front of the eyes of the world. I mean, a temple's important. But, but didn't, didn't God dwell back there in the tent back there in the wilderness? Can't you just use a tent, Solomon? Can't we just do that? No, no. Now listen, I really want us to look good. I want us to look big. That isn't what he, he had none of that in mind. Then he says flat out, the reason we're going to build a temple... The reason why we're getting out of that old tent, the reason why we're going to lift up God here is because we want the world to know the same God that we do. We have the example of Hezekiah praying for deliverance from Sennacherib, king of Assyria. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, he says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, and that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Why do you want delivered, Hezekiah? Well, <laughs> the enemy, I'm scared to death, and I don't, want, I don't want them coming in here and changing our lifestyle and wrecking our families and, and pillaging our homes, and I don't want any of that. That's not what he said. He said, we want you to deliver us, God. Save us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. What if a foreign power came to the United States to take us over militarily? They're doing it in other ways, but militarily. What, what, what would we, how would we pray? Oh God, save us. Oh God, deliver us. Oh God, <laughs> my children, my family. <laughs> save us so that we can continue to murder babies. Save us so that we can continue to push an anti-God agenda. Save us so that we can go deeper and deeper into sin. Oh, save us, God! Why? 
I'm going to tell you something. Until we get back to saving us for the right reasons, we might as well stop praying. Save us for what? So we can continue to bash God and anybody that believes in him? Exercise freedoms unless it's to preach the gospel? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. God, save us from the enemy. And I mean save us from the enemy, Satan, even, for one purpose. And that is to elevate, to magnify, to glorify God. It's not about us. It's about him. We have the example of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And they're over there crying for their God to light it up. And finally, it just doesn't work because those idols have no power. They're not even real. Well, preacher, I just believe that all religion is very important. I think that they all have some truth to them. And I just believe that there's many roads that lead to, to Rome. And I'm just serious. I believe that. Would you stop believing and start getting in the Bible and learn something? What you believe doesn't matter. And what I believe doesn't matter. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Do you know there's only one way to heaven? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If a person doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're going to die and split hell wide open. I don't care how faithful they are to their faith. I don't care how faithful they are to their family. They're going to die and go to hell. Prophets of Baal thought they had a way. It didn't work. Elijah steps to the plate, and in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known that this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that, all, and that I have done all things at thy word. And he goes on in verse 39 to say, and when all the people saw it, when that fire fell, my friends, let me tell you, the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Why do you do what you do? I mean, why do you go to work? Why do you raise the family the way you do? Why do you go to church? We need to start thinking about these things. We need to understand why we do what we do. Understand again the mark. The mark is maturity. It's Christ-likeness. Realize as a believer the means, the means by which we obtain to that mark or that maturity, that Christ-likeness, is through mastery. It's growing each and every day. The mission is magnification. The ultimate end is God is glorified. So, how do we obtain that? How do we get there? I believe that we can find our answer in the example of the Bereans. Paul was in Thessalonica. And, you know, Paul was an interesting character. He was considered a missionary. He's considered an evangelist. And whatever field you're in, that's what he is because you want to claim him on your team. 
But he didn't just slip into town. He didn't just hold a few quiet meetings. He didn't enjoy a good time of cooking and fellowship. He didn't just go get a generous honorarium or, or love offering and then slip back out of town and, and just kind of slide by with under the radar. That's not how the Apostle Paul operated. Everybody knew when Paul came to town. I mean... <laughs> People were passionate. They got their passion stirred. Things happened. The place was turned upside down. And that's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. He arrives in Thessalonica and he makes his way right into that old synagogue. And there he begins to preach Christ resurrected to the Jew who doesn't believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Let me tell you what. His message was Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, he said. Sounds a lot like the message that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7 to the council, to the people. Sounds a lot like the message that John and Peter were preaching in the early part of the book of Acts. And boy, I'll tell you what. There were some that believed, but there were, all the other, there were also others that did not believe. They were moved, the Bible says, with envy. They enlisted some ungodly sorts, and they came together, and they incited a riot, and they assaulted the house of Jason. Jason was taken captive, and Paul and the others were smuggled out of town at night to avoid any further uproar. To the southwest, about 60 miles away, was a town called Berea. That's where Paul would go. Interestingly enough, Paul spent just three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. He was there no more than three weeks, but more than likely only two. He's gets this riot started. His life is in jeopardy. He flees for his life. They send him away, and he ends up in Berea. And what does Paul do? Ah, he don't lay low. He walks right on into the synagogue. That, that doesn't even make sense to some of us. That's a man on a mission right there. That's a man that doesn't care about his life. All he cares about is serving the Lord. Preaching the truth. Winning souls. And then we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Turn there, would you please? Acts chapter 17. We've already noted the mark of the Christian life. It's maturity. It's Christ's likeness. We note the means by which we arrive at that. It's mastery. It's growth. We realize that the mission ultimately is to magnify and glorify God. How are we going to get that done? See, we complicate the Christian life all too often. We make everything so complicated that it doesn't have to be complicated. And watch what happens here. I believe that the secret is found in the example of the Berean believer Acts 17.10, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Note verse 11, 
These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Wow. I mean, these folks in Berea, the Bible says they received the word with all readiness of mind. They were open to the word of God. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to know the principles by which to govern their life and their Christian life. They searched the scriptures daily themselves. They were in the word of God. They listened to the message of the apostle Paul, but they said, we want to dig. We want to know some things. We want to double check some things, whether those things were so. And so they got into their Bibles and they started digging into that Old Testament and they started looking into the truth and making sure that what the apostle Paul said was spot on. Can I tell you, it's not enough for you as a believer to come to the house of God and listen to a man stand behind the pulpit and proclaim the truth of God's word. It's not enough for you to go to Sunday school and simply hear the lesson that's being taught in the walls of that classroom. It's not enough for you to simply go to a Bible study and hear what someone else has to say about the Word of God. My friend, if you are ever going to attain, if you're ever going to arrive, if you're going to accomplish what God intended, if you're going to become everything God wants you to be and experience all the joy that God has for you in your life, my friend, you have got to get in this book. That's the problem, isn't it? We don't have the heart of the Berean today. Oh, I, I don't know, preacher. I mean, I, I don't want to be an ordinary Christian. I want to be extraordinary. Well, praise God, can I tell you, you will never be anything but ordinary. If you don't make this book big in your life. Well, you know, preacher, I, I'm not good at reading. I prefer praying. My friend, don't give me that. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And by the way, your prayers are not answered unless they're prayers of faith. Go ahead, throw the book away. You have no faith to pray anyway. It's just idle prayer. It's bouncing off the ceiling. I'm so glad I'm saved, preacher. I know, but are you growing? I want to be extraordinary for God. I want to be an extraordinary Christian. I don't want to be just an ordinary. Can I tell you, ordinary Christians are sucking on bottles today because they're unwilling to get into the meat of the word. I've known Sunday school teachers. I've known pastors. I've known people through my life that had attained to levels in the church of authority, preeminence, that said, hey, listen, can you help me? I'm really struggling in my Bible reading and prayer. And I think to myself, how long has this been going on? What are you talking about? You just had a bad week or what? It's been going on for six months or longer. And I think to myself, how long will it be before you crash and burn, friend, if you don't figure this one out? See, the Christian, we make it so complicated. Well, I need to go soul winning, and and I need to have standards, and and I got to do this, and I got to do that. Can I tell you that you'd be best served to just get in your Bible, and if you will get in this book, you will find all of those things. 
We're trying to accomplish the Christian life. We're trying to become something that we don't even know how to become. I mean, this book, you can't separate Christ from this book. You can't separate God from this book. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ and the Word of God are inseparable. We have the written Word and we have the incarnate Word. And they're all the Word of God. My friend, you and I will never, ever be anything but ordinary Christians without God's Word. I'm just so busy, preacher. I'm struggling with that. You better stop struggling with it. I don't know why my kids are going off the deep end. I don't know why my home's falling apart. I don't know why my marriage is not what it ought to be. I'll tell you why. Because either you or both of you have abandoned the Word of God. Somehow, some way, you have dismissed this book in your life and you are living it according to your ways and your means. You have forgotten what your real purpose and for existing is. It is not so that you can have a good marriage. It's not so you can have a nice family. It's not so that you can have a good job and have money in the bank and retire early. It is so God will be glorified. It's not complicated. You got the heart of the Berean or you don't. And if you don't, you'll be ordinary the rest of your days. Let's look around us in America as we close. What has the ordinary church, the ordinary pastor, the ordinary Christian done for America today? Look at our homes. What's ordinary Christianity doing for our homes? What's it doing for our marriages? What's it doing for our children? Let's look at the world. What is ordinary Christianity doing to reach the world with the gospel? You can't control your neighbor. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your family even to some degree. You can think you can, and when they're young, it's easy. But there comes a point where they'll make their own decisions and go their own way. But my friend, you can control your decision. What are you going to do? You're going to continue to give excuses why this book isn't important in your life and continue and remain to be ordinary? Will you make a commitment to God to say, I'm going to make this book a priority. I'm going to hold it near and dear. I'm going to make a choice to make it big in my life because I want to be, I don't want to settle. I never want to settle for being ordinary. Lord, I want to be extraordinary for you. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you just work in our hearts and our lives. We are desperate for you. We need you so much. Sadly, Lord, it's just our desires sometimes are not the Bereans. It's, we, we, we have so many other things that are distracting us, so many other things that are hindering us and hampering us from you, your word, and pursuing your purpose and plan for our lives. And Lord, help us not to be caught up in this world. There's nothing about this temporal world that brings true happiness, joy, and peace. 
God, we need to turn to you and to your word. Oh, Father, help us to receive your word with all readiness of mind, to wake up excited about it, to search those scriptures daily, not just when it's convenient, to weigh it out in our mind, to to weigh it on the scale, to take everything we're taught and really consider it through the eyes of your word. Father, there may be somebody here that doesn't even know you as Savior and Lord today. If they died right now, they would split hell wide open. It's not that they're a bad person per se. The problem is, is that they're still bound by sin and you haven't taken their place and paid their sin debt. So as a result, they're going to have to pay it. I pray, Lord, that they would recognize the need to come to Jesus today and to allow you to pay for their sin. You did that 2,000 years ago on the cross. Now they just have to acknowledge you and receive and accept you and you'll do just that for them. Bless us in these moments now, Lord. Help us to make decisions to make the word of God big in our life and then outline a game plan to cause that to happen, to make it happen, to not just make a decision, but to put some, a plan in place to accomplish it. Well, thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed.